I can't understand anything you're saying. You're Spencer Dutton, the American war hero who hunts the man-eaters. You killed the man-eater of the Kalahari, the man-eater of Savi, the man-eaters of Savo. I was five when they killed the man-eater of Savo. You'll never convince her that. And you just killed the man-eating leopards of Matsaswa. You're famous in case you were unaware. I was unaware. <laughs> well, you are. It said you killed one with your bare hands. You believe everything you hear? Only when I want it to be true. Why would you want that to be true? For the romance of it. There's no romance in it. Then why do you do it? Because dying is the most alive you'll ever feel. You don't see the romance in that. Welcome to Pod Clubhouse's coverage of 1923, a prequel series to Yellowstone. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode two of 1923, Nature's Empty Throne. Tonight's episode was once again written by Taylor Sheridan and was once again directed by Ben Richardson. Just a community note, please join us on Facebook in Yellowstone, 1923, 1883, and 4-6's discussion and news group to discuss 1923 and the whole universe of Yellowstone shows. Just a reminder, we assume you've watched this episode, so we're not going to be giving you a step-by-step recap of the episode, but we're certainly going to be spoiling it, the episode. So if you haven't watched it yet, pause this podcast, go watch it, come back. Unless you don't care about spoilers, then keep on trucking, because, you know, this this was a good one. Caroline, I gotta start at the title, Nature's Empty Throne. I feel like I should be getting this reference. It's such a specific thing. I tried looking up to see if it was a poem. I tried to see if it was a phrase that occurred anywhere. I couldn't find it i feel like i'm being really dense i i just not picking up on what nature's empty throne is any thoughts i i don't know these titles always mean something if they're not actually specifically said and i'm blanking on this one well i you know throne makes me think of uh going back to our conversation last week about sort of who can be in charge of nature who can be the king of it if you will and maybe this episode is trying to remind us that you know nature is uh, not something that you can be the king of. So perhaps this is one of those um, you know nature's going to do what nature's going to do kind of titles. But definitely throw it out to our listeners if you guys have any ideas. We'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, right off the top. Uh, besides the title, I also noticed in this episode no opening scene, no cold open. We went right to the credits. That's very odd for all of these Yellowstone shows. There's almost always, unless something very dramatic is going to happen, like immediately, we almost always get some kind of cold open to set the table or set the stage or or some kind of cliffhanger going into the opening theme. I found it a little jarring it just, to, just to kind of start with the credits. But I appreciated getting a better chance of looking at each of the characters, actually. I enjoy the the title sequence there with all the different, you know, sort of like flowing from one character to the next. And I, I liked like getting a better look at like Spencer's face and, and, and all that during the actual, you know, like title sequence. 
I, I love all these themes. So the Yellowstone, 1883, 1923, they're all so, they're, they're all distinct, but they're also all kind of related. They all feel like they're in the same family, like Dutton's from different generations. Uh, something I've noticed about this show, and I think it's a, a, a nature of the fact that we're, the show is currently taking place in two very different locations. The Africa music, the the music, the score being played in the show during the Africa scenes, it's very British insofar as it's very reminiscent of the kind of score you would have gotten on like Downton Abbey, uh, which took place in the same time period. Uh, you know, that show began with, begins with the sinking of the Titanic and then goes through World War One and then and then into the twenties, and it's very similar music it's definitely of an age but it's very distinctive from the yearning american west country cowboy themes that you get when we're getting like the montana shots and the cowboys from afar and and all that it's very distinctive there there's there's two different shows happening here if you're just listening to the music on the show i found that interesting as far as kind of keeping you in time and place of where you are We'll have to reach out to the composers on this one and see if they'd like to chat with us a little bit about how they created the different sounds that they're using for us. Let's uh, talk about some episode themes. I, for me, two really stood out, one more than the other. I, I thought it was interesting. There was a, a real juxtaposition of the idea of saviors, uh, real and imagined. Uh, you have Sister Mary's bathtub side rants or screed she gives tiona about trying to be her savior and i think that's the imagined part but then at the end of the episode you have uh you have uh, alexandra referring to spencer as her knight in shining armor um as she literally runs away from her wedding and jumps in the car with him i want to play both of these clips and just talk about the the idea of savior did anyone ask to be saved is anyone in a position to be doing the saving i don't know that spencer is in the position to be saving anyone and i certainly don't think sister mary and her ilk are doing any real saving here let's uh let's start with her clip you think i'm your adversary but i'm not i'm your salvation I am the bridge from the extinct civilization of your people to the thriving society tasked with taming this godless place. I offer all the skills required for a young woman to thrive as mother and wife. How to farm, how to cook, how to clean, how to read, arithmetic, science, most important of all scripture. I offer all the skills you need to live a bountiful life. And you refuse them. Attack me for teaching them. Look at me, girl. I've sworn to kill the Indian in you. And will keep my word. <coughs> if you ever lay a hand on me again, I'll kill the rest of you. I, I don't know that anyone asked any of these people to come and show them how to live life properly. 
or to save them from their selves or any of the more derogatory ways uh, that Sister Mary talks about their Native American culture and language. I mean, look at this episode where it's not even the fact that she beats the ever-loving shit out of Sister Mary that gets Tiona in the hotbox. It's that she speaks in her language, in, in her native language. That's the offensive thing to Father Anod when he, he stuffs her in the hotbox with the help of the other two priests. He says, you know, if I ever hear you see, uh, you know, speaking that filth, I'll put you in the ground. Yeah, he said he would bury her alive. That's uh, this this entire storyline is going to be difficult. I, I'm going to have a really hard time with it this whole time to just have that visual of the priests like dragging her along like, you know, like she's a criminal. It's so strange and surreal to see priests like that for us modern day you know like we don't Uh see that type of thing it's it's very difficult to digest and you know everything from her being you know locked up in isolation although i have to say the second they locked the door i was like man that might have been the first time i would actually like exhaled you know if i was like sitting in there because at least i know someone's not coming up behind me because that was the portion of that whole you know bathtub scene that was so upsetting to me was how, you know, we have this one nun, which I do want to say right now, I had said last week in our last podcast about, you know, let's have like somewhat compassion for the layer of the the teaching nun because they have these layers of priests above them who are so harsh and so abusive. But after this week, I don't know, guys, I don't have any compassion for these nuns. Like this is clearly a very disturbed group of people. Everything that was going on there, all the different levels of abuse it was just coming at me like one after another after another and i i cannot imagine being in her position i mean i i have my fingers crossed so hard that we get to this grandmother portion and the adoption so quick because i don't want her to have to be here too long I don't even want to try and pronounce uh, the, uh, Grandma Rain- Rainwater's first name because I'm going to butcher it. You, you can see it on the appointment card. It's also in the IMDb credits. It's, uh, she's being played by Amelia Rico. What did you think of the introduction of of another family member and the fact that she's on not Broken Rock, but she's on the Lodge Grass Reservation, which is a real place in Montana. It was part of the Crow Reservation. Well, it certainly expanded the universe for us in terms of understanding that this is not just at the residential school. There's there is this whole network of schools of these day schools that they could be attending and they didn't have to be at this residential boarding school. It also I mean, God, the way that they were treated, you know, where she had an appointment and so did the elderly man. And he said he had been sitting there for two days. I mean, my heart like sank. But the mere existence of the grandmother and her persistence and her willingness to go there and sit as long as she needed to to come after Tiana made me really actually very hopeful because previous to that moment, we didn't have any particular road that she was getting out of here besides just running away, which may be how this goes anyway. But this actually gives us a viable route to her safety. That gives me a little bit of hope that this character is not just going to be, you know, just a a series of tragic moments. I mean, despite Grandma Rainwater's treatment in the office uh, by Mr. Worth, the superintendent, she seemed undaunted. She seemed like she had a real reservation or a reservoir of strength about her and i don't think this will be the last time we see her i just get that feeling like she's just not going to go disappear and give up on finding her granddaughter 
And I like that because I, if nothing else, and I, I've really grown to like this aspect of Tiona, the character, I like how defined she is. I like how uh, how feisty she is. I like how, you know, bent but not broken she is, no matter what's happening to her. You know, your your culture, your language is literally being trying, is, is being hotboxed away from you, beat out of you in a bathtub, sexually violated out of you. And she persists, and she's still there, and she's still not giving into it. And it would be so easy for her to just get with the program and forsake what she knows. But she's not. And and I like that you got to see where where does that kind of strength come from? Well, this you know this old grandma coming in and and fighting for where her daughter is, uh, her granddaughter is, and getting her um getting her brought home. I, I was I thought it was interesting to find out that she's actually over in North Dakota. Uh, that's quite a distance uh, from where they are. It wasn't like they just shipped her across the state of Montana or, you know, a few miles away. She's quite, she's, she's away. She Mm -hmm. is away. You know, even if she was to escape that boarding school, I can't imagine how she easily or successfully makes her way all the way back to, to Lodgegrass, Montana. It feels like not without help, which is why this grandmother character really feels like it's breathing a little bit of hope into that storyline because there's she's got to have someone open the door somewhere in order for her to have a chance here. I really appreciate the fact that this is another variation of a strong woman who is trying to work the system, you know, because sometimes we can see on a a lot of shows, especially when you have, you know, one strong creative voice where many characters can be painted by the same brush. I love Gilmore Girls, but not every single character can talk at the same rate as they all seem to, you know, and I love it, but it's just, you know, that's the, the hand of the creator. In this case, sometimes some of the women can be kind of lumped together and have really similar characteristics on the in the whole Yellowstone universe. And I'm really glad that this was like each woman that was represented here, each one that was even introduced to us in this episode had their own distinct personalities and their own way of doing things. But they were all grounded in this strong, persistent, determined, you know, willing to to stick their neck out and be so brave to these people who could absolutely just rip them to shreds. And that alone, I feel like, wow, this this makes this episode really stand out for me because we have several instances of women standing up for themselves and really trying to stand up for others, which is, again, sometimes people just save themselves, but they don't bother to save anybody else along the way. So true. And then also often depicted uh, in television and movies. But I want to talk about Mr. Worth, the superintendent, because I found the scene infuriating how he treated her because not because he was mean, he was mean, but he was dismissive. It was the lack of giving a shit at all that almost made it seem worse than had he actually gotten mad at what she was requesting. Do you know what I mean? It, it, the ap- the apathy was worse yeah. than any emotion. It, it was like she she didn't like she wasn't a human equal to him that deserved any kind of recognition. And and she, and he had such an edge to him though where it felt unpredictable. It felt to me like at any second though he could 
you know, throw something at her or, or, you know, I don't know, just shove her out of the office or yell at her or whatever. You felt that like in the air, the air was so thick with tension between them that, you know, it was well portrayed to us that this was not a situation that anybody ever comes to and gets any amount of relief. You know, this man doesn't solve anybody's problems. It doesn't feel like. I was actually surprised that he gave her the nugget of information of who to go to next. I really thought she was going to have to figure that out for herself. So at least she has that little crumb to take about who to talk to next. I agree, but also it seems like maybe that's just what he says to everyone because because he's sending her essentially back to her own people. She even says, like, there is no judge. You're the judge. You know, how she understands it. And he's saying basically go go to the the judge, the magistrate at the on the Crow reservation. So go see your own people. I, I send everyone there because I am not actually here to help or give relief, like you said. I think you said it perfectly. Why even bother to ask if she has the death certificate for her daughter, for Tiona's mother? Because he looks at it and he's like, ah, it doesn't even change the law. Like, dude, you're not being any fucking helpful at all. Like, you're quibbling over family. You could actually give some constructive advice here or probably with one phone call resolve this issue. Oh, a thousand percent. It would have only been one. one. Because he is family by any definition, you know. Yes. Well, when he said immediate family, I was like, oh, gosh, you're really like picking this apart and and being ridiculous, especially, you know, when he says, oh, you know, the father abandoned her. And then I loved it that the grandmother corrected him and said, no, he's working. He didn't abandon her. I mean, this is the type of stuff where, you know, I don't know how much that you've dealt with schools in general, but but this is the type of stuff that as a teacher, I definitely saw over the years. There are people in the faculty who are there to be obstacles. That is like, that is practically why they were hired. It is in their job description to be the speed bump, basically, to turn away as many people as possible and make them have to jump through more hoops to get to the next level. That's basically all this guy was, which is terrible because he's supposedly the superintendent. You know, he's supposedly someone who's supposed to be higher up. This woman wasn't going to get anything out of this guy. We have a, a saying in my family that is a, uh, can he, will he, this man wasn't going to and uh, didn't matter if he actually could because he wasn't going to. So he had no help here. I was, again, though, very glad that this storyline has a little crack in the door because it needed it. Right, right. Just the, the sheer introduction of the grandmother provides some glimmer of hope that there will be resolution that is not going to be eight episodes of Tiona getting a shit kicked out of her or raped or hope not I am I'm really quite frightened about that I really don't want that to be all there is to show well I think they're they're gonna lose viewers though too I think there there's a line there's a line between speaking truth to power and showing people uncomfortable things and then there there's a fine line between that and turning people off where they stop listening or they stop watching we talked about this a little bit in 1883 in terms of having a teenage girl, essentially, young woman, be your focus. Again, we know the demographic of these shows. And there was a lot of men who are watching who are a little bit older and and are here for the Western of it all. I know they need to know like the gritty, honest side of what was going on because, you know, they may have grown up playing cowboys and Indians or something and they need to see like, what's the real story here? However, again, we 
got to get back to that entertainment value portion. There's got to be clever ways to tell this story to show other aspects of what was going on. There had to have been girls within these boarding schools that were successful in getting out, or there had to be ones that figured out a way to, to get through it. We need to see a little bit of something good you know i hate to say it like that but a little bit um and the grandmother phew it was like a breath of fresh air so we see that she's on the lodge grass reservation that's on the appointment card so lodge grass is a real place it actually sits uh on the lodge grass creek which empties into the little bighorn river um which is also the site of well one of the crow indian reservations just from the wikipedia nope i'm sorry this is actually from the montana visitors board it says lodge grass is a center for ranches who herds graze the rich grass covered uplands where buffalo used to range so long ago the crows made their summer camps here the town was named lodge grass creek this is a great white person uh translation story the town was named lodge grass creek which empty uh because the indians called the stream greasy grass because the rich grass made their animals fat the words grease and lodge are so similar in the crow language it was mistranslated into lodge grass instead of the originally intended greasy grass and that is how we get lodge grass montana Good background. And Crow Agency, that's where we hear uh, Mr. Worth says that she should go see the magistrate of the Crow Agency. Uh, the Crow Agency is a general term used ever since 1868 for the headquarters wherever the United States has interacted with the Crow tribe on its reservation. There is a actual court system. The Crow Agency is a specific place in Montana. It's 60 miles southeast of Billings, Montana, on the Little Bighorn River. The Crow Tribal Courts are the judiciary branch of the Crow Nation government. The judicial branch of the Crow Nation government consists of all the courts established by the Crow Law, Crow Law and Order Code. So there is a whole court system. They have an appellate court, they have a Supreme Court, or a Supreme Court has been approved, but not actually implemented yet. But they do have an appellate court. They have judges that sit. So that's where he's sending her. And it is a longstanding, you know, thing inside. They actually have their own website. You can actually go to the Crow Agency court website. I was there earlier. It, it is a thing, but it definitely feels when Mr. Worth is saying it, he's kind of like, your problem, not my problem. Your people's problem, not my problem. So hopefully, hopefully we continue following Grandma Rainwater's, uh, you know, journey to try and get Tiona back. And surely we will, right? I mean, that's got to be where we're heading with that whole story. Well, she just seems too. She seems too kind of feisty and fierce, like her granddaughter, to give up. So even if she keeps hitting roadblocks, I, I suspect we're going to continue to see her. I said this episode for me had to th had the theme of of saviors. We talked about Sister Mary being kind of an imagined savior. Uh, I want to talk about Alexandra, uh, who is introduced in this episode as what looks like to be the new love interest for Spencer Dutton. Alexandra, what are your first impressions? She's played by Julia Schleipfer. Schleipfer? I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering her last name. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious what your initial impressions were of her first time seeing her on screen today. Alexandra continues having that same spunk that we want all of the, our characters to have. She's very feisty. She's very um, outspoken. I appreciated this 
entire in-depth look at her life because there was a line in the previous episode where we have Kara talking about freedom and that you'll enjoy freedom that you never really could understand. And that was something that was a callback to 1883 and all of the conversation about freedom and being a young woman and having any degree of freedom. But we hadn't really established anything like that in 1923 yet. So for those viewers who hadn't watched 1883, they might have kind of cocked their head at this concept of like freedom. Like, what are you talking about? But then here we have this Alexandra story and we see that she is not in love with this man and she doesn't really know what to do. She doesn't have any good options. And so she's left with this, you know, running away, yelling, you know, find someone who loves you kind of thing. I thought that it really helped illustrate how boxed in young women were during this time and and how they had to do these like really I mean when you think of how outlandish it is that she like jumped in a car of a guy she didn't know you know and left her entire group of people there um and when she's supposed to get married and everything it, it was all pretty wild it was pretty bold most most people in the world could never even dream of doing anything like this but she is going to be a future Dutton I feel her, like very deeply in my heart that okay this is where we get some beth you know coming into the bloodline here if not blood of margaret and elsa and beth definitely definitely in spirit if not in bloodline for sure i want to play there's a bunch of clips i want to play from her and spencer's direction because i found their chemistry i I felt literal electric sparks coming out of the tv the the smoldering chemistry immediately between them the intense eye looking that they were doing eye contact that they were making with each other literally from the jump but i'm going to play them out of order a little bit because what you were saying uh, about her story and how she jumps in the car is kind of wild she has this when she walks when she fast walks out of her engagement party you know you can feel her anxiety attack i felt like coming through the tv screen i think she did such a wonderful job of portraying that all of the eyes on her the smile that she gives and then like the hyperventilating when she finally makes it to the balcony but when her friend jennifer comes to check on her she she gives this little speech uh, about destinations and being a transaction i have been placed on a train with a destination not my choosing And I have no means of stopping. He's kind, Alex. It's more than I can say for most. Who did kindness sweep from their feet? I mean, real estate transaction, Jennifer. That's all this is. Oh, Alex. Men are the same after 30. The hairline retreats and their bellies march forward. <laughs> the time will come when kindness is the only thing that matters. So a couple things there. One, I, I would be remiss if we didn't point out her mentioning that she has been placed towards a destination that uh, not of her choosing. And to parallel that with Spencer, who last week when he's woken on the train uh, pulling into Nairobi, he talks about how he doesn't have a destination. It's just another stop on the journey. Just that sheer writing. Co- I mean, that's not a writing coincidence because they wrote it intentionally. But the, sh- the sheer coincidence of these two characters finding each other, both with this idea of not wanting actively not wanting to reach a destination one because they're not comfortable with what that destination may be or two because they know what the destination is and it's not the destination they want it's not the one that they would have chosen for themselves that makes them kind of kindred spirits you you see in that moment 
you understand having heard Spencer from last week, why they would be drawn to each other. I, I think, I think that captures it pretty well, like almost immediately. I think it was the line when she said that her adventures are coming to an end, that they're over. That's really hit my heart. And I I felt for her and I understood. And I, again, going back to Elsa's story in the previous series, I really felt like we were feeling a lot of the same type of energy, you know, that this like I can't just settle. I cannot just have this is what my whole life adds up to being. Very compelling to me as we're learning more about these characters and basically just how the Dutton family came to be. I really want to see more of these individual characters with such similarities, like you're saying, because that helps us understand how those characteristics like stayed with the family for so long and got us into like modern day. You kind of give a perfect segue because let's jump to their first conversation, Alexandra and Spencer's conversation at the bar. Uh, the clip I'm going to play comes a little bit later in that conversation, but they start off by saying, oh, you're an American. And he says, why? You know, why are British people always so surprised when they see an American here? And she's like, because it's so far. He's like, you're far from home and I'm not surprised to see you. And this idea that these two people are actively trying to avoid where their real life should probably place them, England and America. And here they are finding each other on the eastern coast of Africa in 1923. How far they have both run from their lives to wind up here. It's interesting that this wanderlust in them and, and fear of going home and fear of what that destination may be has both brought them to this strange world to them anyway this this exotic world in uh you know east africa uh i want to play their first clip you really it's a visual clip for sure and definitely go back and and rewatch it guys if, if you didn't catch it really the first time they're smoldering at each other and alexandra in particular is staring at him with an intensity that made my pulse quicken and then when she's at the end of this clip, he stares back at her. He finally really hears her for the first time. He stares at her in a way that also made my pulse quicken. It was immediate. It was visceral. I felt it in like the subcockles. Like I felt it in my soul how these two were looking at each other. Let's listen to how life can be romantic. I can't understand anything you're saying. You're Spencer Dutton, the American war hero who hunts the man-eaters. You killed the man-eater of the Kalahari, the man-eater of Savi, the man-eaters of Savo. I was five when they killed the man-eater of Savo. You'll never convince her that. And you just killed the man-eating leopards of Matsaswa. You're famous in case you were unaware. I was unaware. Well, you are. It said you killed one with your bare hands. You believe everything you hear? Only when I want it to be true. Why would you want that to be true? For the romance of it. There's no romance in it. Then why do you do it? Because dying is the most alive you'll ever feel. You don't see the romance in that. 
I mean, she drops her voice and whispers that into him. It, the look on his face, go back and look at it. The look, his eyes open so wide and he sees her for the first time. And I think maybe he sees himself. I, I think, I think he sees, I'm going to say it again. I think he sees his kindred spirit in her in that moment. The, this idea that we come alive when we're closest to death. And it echoes the end, uh, the end club, which I'm going to play here in a minute. Uh, you know, let's look death in the eye then, shall we? You know, like these two are these two want to live on the knife's edge and maybe they need to live on the knife's edge together. It, it, it's fantastic. I think one of the best meetings of two people I've seen on television in a long time really, really took my breath away. I loved how raw and just like they weren't playing any manners games of this time. You know, we weren't stuck with any type of etiquette rules and all that stuff that seems to make these this time period in general feel like, oh, God, just like get there already. You know, like we want these people to feel like they can be passionate and loving and caring for each other. And we have to go usually through so many red tape kind of steps in order to be able to get there wooing and whatnot that this was like. Yeah, like these people are like wild and raw and and just going to go for it. Yeah, especially I mean you know that's not more dem- well not more well demonstrated. I'm sure there was a better way to phrase that. Then when her friend comes over, I think it's Jennifer comes over and says, "That's enough. Enough of this. She's um she's going to be married, sir." Like it, like she's blaming Spencer for this obvious chemistry. These two are about to like pounce on each other here at the bar. And then you hear the little prissy fiance in there when they they're in their watering hole conversation they had. That's when they have the conversation about Where's your next adventure take you east? Where's your next adventure take you? My adventures are done. That's sad. You know, when the fiance calls, you know, for her from the doorway, but he just doesn't say, you know, Alexandra, what are you doing with that man? He's like, Alexandra. He's like all, you know, high, high prissy offended at it because they're all playing the manners game, but these two are not. You're hundred percent right. They're just raw and they're just into each other and they're vibing on each other and they're just feeling it in a way. They're feeling in a way that I hope all of us get to feel at some point because it's it, it's a great feeling when when you when you meet that person and they make you feel that way um you know and and everyone else and everything else kind of falls into the background and it's just you and them i think they did a great job of portraying that on screen that, that's that's how i took it dutton lore in that clip we just played spencer dutton famous hunter i mean these these people know who he they are they know the animals that he's taken down the man eaters of, of, of across africa that he's killed i was a little surprised to find out that he's that famous it, it felt like they you know in modern day there would be like a like a baseball trading card with his face on it the many kills of spencer dutton that was very groupie-esque when they were doing that and it, it was funny to find out that that his fame had preceded him but at the same time i guess because he does these contracts gigs i i guess you have to have some sort of like name recognition right there has to be some way for somebody to know who to hire and who to do this with it did surprise me to see them be so gushy but it made sense once they started kind of like talking about it more you're like yeah okay well he yeah i mean he's obviously sought after and people are really happy with his work and stuff so okay like he is successful in this most rogue world that he's living in so a little factual stuff here just just for africa geography I've, I've been looking at it and trying to because the african map has changed so much in the last hundred years with the end of colonialism and many of these countries that used to be protectorates and then they were colonies becoming free independent republics spencer is in nairobi nairobi is a city in what we now call 
Kenya during World War One and after it was part of what was called British East Africa and then was called uh, the Protectorate or the Kenyan Protectorate. Um, and when you hear you hear Spencer say that he works for the Protectorate in this scene, uh, Alex asks him if he's a guide or who's a, who he's a hunter for which guide. And he said, I don't work for a guide. I work for the Protectorate. He's referring literally to the government at this time. Now, technically, the Protectorate over all of, of all of Kenya really ended in 1920, but there was a little strip on the very coast of Kenya that remained the Kenya Protectorate. So it's unclear which protectorate that he's talking about, but basically he's talking about he's working essentially for the British government in power, controlling Kenya in the post-World War One. He's, he's working essentially for the government as this big game hunter. Now he is told he has to go to Tanganyika, to hunt a spotted hyena. Now, Tanganyika doesn't really exist anymore. It's been absorbed into what is modern-day Tanzania, which is the country south of Kenya. The area we hear later on at the very end of the episode that they're going on the roads to Seren- to the Serengeti. He says, you know, how about the roads to Serengeti? He's like, they're horrible, the driver says to him. The Serengeti land in what would have been Tanganyika at this time is west. It's southwest of Nairobi. When he says that my adventures take me east, you're not going east. East would take you to like Mombasa into like the uh, Indian Ocean. He's not going east. He's actually going southwest. I don't know why he said that. It, it you know it bothered me. So unless I'm missing something based on my colonial maps of Africa that I've been reading and looking at and studying the last couple of days. <laughs> and guys, I've been trying. I've been trying to locate it. Tanganyika, loosely translated, it means the Great Wide Plain River because Tanganyika is named after Lake Tanganyika, which is in the western side of what was Tanganyika at this point, kind of the lake that separates Tanzania and the uh, Belgian Congo. Yeah, so he's going southwest. He's not going east. He's lying to her here, but maybe just east sounded more romantic, I don't know, versus saying, I'm going southwest. Um, I don't know, especially these days with southwest. No, Maybe no one wants to talk about southwest. Oh, Lord, I we certainly shouldn't. But let's play this final clip just to kind of round out Alex and Spencer, because then I want to jump to Spencer in the beginning of the episode, but that doesn't involve Alex. Uh, this is the Runaway Bride clip. This is the Knight in Shining Armor clip. This is how I am connecting it back to the episode theme of Saviors. Got room for another? No, not really. My Knight in Shining Armor. <laughs> Please drive. Look at me. If you don't want me to come, I'll get out. Where I'm going is dangerous. Let's look death in the eye then, shall we? Just a great scene. Just, 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 I think, the cap on an episode of intense smoldering and chemistry and kismet and, I don't want to say love at first sight, but definitely intrigue, maybe a little bit of lust, a little bit of excitement, a little bit of the pulse quickening at first sight. And goddamn, if that's not a good feeling, Caroline, I, 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 I right? I'm... Sure, sure. I think at the beginning of any relationship, there's definitely you want to hope that you have those sparks. Um, but I think that two of them are so extreme. They are so lucky to have found each other because, you know, again, like I said, earlier few women are going to run away from that situation that she was in and the fact that she was so bold to just run from her own family and friends that were like standing right 
there. It's not like she snuck out of her window in the night kind of thing. Like she just walked away from all of them. Um, and there's something very brave about all of that. And the two of them sort of like, it's like they deserve each other, you know, for good or for bad. You know, they're both kind of wild. They're both very uh, willing to be adventuresome. And maybe that's going to be great. Maybe that's going to kick them in the ass. <laughs> I don't know. By the way, they're staying at the Stanley Hotel in Nairobi. There is a Sarova Stanley. It's a five-star hotel in Nairobi. So I wonder if that is the the one we're seeing in the show is meant to be the progenitor or the earlier version of that current hotel in Nairobi. So I love a little, I love a good attention to detail. They didn't make a big, a big thing of it that they're staying at the Stanley hotel. But if you look between the wedding guests that she's getting, as she's making the decision to run, I like to think of as Julia Roberts in the Richard Gere movie, like runaway bride. When she like yeah. grabs her bag and runs after, like literally runs after. I, I like how slow they're driving that she's able to literally catch up to them. I know. Uh, I was too, laughing is... about that too. But can you imagine like on those dirt roads and it's like open oh. and everything? Like, oh yeah. Oh, so dusty Lord. with the convertible. Yeah. So yes. you have to. It would be crazy. I also liked what it said about Spencer that he sat up front with the driver. I yes. think there was something that I, I, you know, hit right away was like, wow, this guy is, this is what he thinks about other cultures. This is what he thinks about classism. This is what he thinks about what his role is in the world. He obviously sees his driver as his equal, as his peer, as, as somebody to respect. So I I liked that about his character very much. I felt like it was like, yes, Spencer, okay, you seem like an actual, a guy with good head on his shoulders. I, I noted that too, and I think that was a nice bookend to what we see in the beginning of the episode. Uh, sadly, Kagiso, one of his two uh, African guides that he had been working with in the first episode, is clawed to death by the, the leopard still remaining at the end of the first episode he has this interaction with holland and th this brings me to the other this is the start of the other theme i have from tonight's episode the idea of dutton honor and dutton justice and the way dutton see both of those concepts i think this clip in this interaction uh where he is upset and mourning the death of kagiso and he has to talk to holland um, the man who hired him to hunt the leopards. Uh, it kind of comes through, and I want, I want to talk a little bit about it after we listen. But you didn't say that you were sorry. They were a breeding pair, Holland. Breeding pairs hunt together, but you only showed us one set of tracks. You knew. I didn't know. You knew. If I'd known I would have never split us up, I would have kept us together. Now say you're sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. I didn't lose anything. I'm sorry for his loss. I'm sorry for his family's loss. I'm sorry for his wife. For his children. His children, yes, his children. I'm sorry for his... <laughs> Say it again. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too. I think that's a powerful scene, even just listening to it. But watch it again. Uh, Brandon Sklenar, the, the gentleman who plays Spencer, 
as he's trying to get him to say sorry, and he starts saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Spencer starts nodding his head kind of vigorously along with him and then gives that whispered, I'm sorry, too. Really emotional. Uh, really, You really feel, I think, the grief kind of coming out of him in this scene. You know, the pain he's feeling is not from the claw marks at this moment. I think it's it's this idea that this man, Holland, withheld information, and now a friend and a colleague is dead because of it. And that offends Dutton Honor. I think how he handles this scene is exactly how Kevin Costner, John Dutton, would handle it in Yellowstone. I think it's how Tim McGraw's James Dutton would handle it in 1883, especially the, the connection to the Tim McGraw character with the say you're sorry, the kind of vigorous body and head shaking and shooting the gun off as a way of kind of releasing a little bit of that, that, that uh, pressure valve of anger and also to accentuate your point. Very Dutton-esque. This is Dutton honor. You you lied by omission, and a man is dead because of it, and that offends me very much. I think in the sense of Dutton honor, I was I was taken by it. I thought it was good writing as far as family continuity goes. I was curious what your take on that was. Well, across the board, I think that this also was echoed by Jacob's choice to send the sheep to the reservation. You know, when he was like, they're starving people there. There is a, a sense between these two men of having not just like honor, but also thinking beyond themselves. You know, all that the boss who hired him cared about was, you know, his, you know, tourists, essentially. He didn't care about any of the of the helpers that Spencer brought with by omitting that information he did get that man killed and the entire thing it just all spoke to me about having this sort of like larger heart and this bigger understanding and having you know this these groups of people who are so willing to just throw away disposable people amongst them you know just decide that that person's disposable whomever that person is you can tell like the like going back with jacob the other cowboys were like, I don't know, like, what do we care about, you know, making sure that that people are fed over on the reservation? And he was like, people are starving there. Like, this is the right thing to do. Open your eyes, you know, look around you. These are humans. These are other humans that need our help or need our respect or deserve our respect. That was a really nice echo in the in the episode to see both men doing that. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. And I, I think the I think the way Jacob handles uh, banner. I mean, this, this kind of takes us into the last section of, I think, really what happened to the episode. Uh, not a lot happened in this episode, but the things that did happen, I thought were important for show development and for character development. The other thing is the, is the fallout from banner. Uh, taking his sheep onto the Dutton land and shooting at Jack and, and the way Jacob handles it. He doesn't call the sheriff. He, I mean, he, we know there's a sheriff in town. We met him last week. He doesn't call him. He handles it himself. He decides in the moment, I made you a promise what would happen. I told you there would be a price to pay if you did this. Now you're going to pay the price. That, again, is Dutton Honor. I'm a man of my word. He said it last week. He told Banner, I am a man of my word. Don't fucking do this again. And he did. And now Jacob is going to be a man of his word. It's funny because when we're talking about Spencer and Alex and we're talking about sort of that like love relationship, there is a portion of that that makes me think about when you say what you need, when you say what you're going to do, when you say your expectations and then the other person falls short in the case of Jacob. Right. So we have this situation where he's like, I told you exactly how this was going to work between us, how we were going to get be able to get along. And you purposely went out of your way <laughs> to cut my fence and do this. 
I, I don't think he had any choice but to handle it himself because if he had gone off to the sheriff, all it would do would look like, well, if you mess with the Duttons, they'll go run off and tattletale on you. But there's no like actual like immediacy to the issue. When you're dealing with Jacob here and he's like, you know what? We just, we handle you. Like this is kind of like prison justice feeling, you know, like we handle it in-house. There's something about that that makes it feel so much more like you have to respect that person. Like he told you the rules of the game and you chose not to play you know by the rules so now you either you have to accept the consequences now all of this being said i just talked about disposable people do i think that these men should be hung i i mean i know it's of the time right and i know it's not according to banner banner's offended by it this is the 20th century that's right (laughs) that you should be going through the court system right that there should be like you should actually have your day your moment but that survival aspect right like that's where i'm getting at the scrappiness of this whole thing and the idea that like if you don't stand up for yourself you're just gonna get walked all over that's all very fascinating to me and and that you know he uh, you know harrison ford he shone through as a man who could actually hang these guys which you know again we were discussing like how at what point will he disappear into the character i thought he did better this week in terms of like i wasn't looking at him as harrison ford as much as i was worrying about if jacob dutton was doing the right thing a hundred percent i i felt much more sucked in there was a little bit of the moment as he's getting set up and the clip we're going to play that gets right to the point you're talking about about you have to stand up for yourself or else you're going to get walked over he starts that 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 campfire scene with with uh john and jack starts with some old man grousing right it's you know in my day we didn't have a bunkhouse in my day we walked up the mountain with the herd to, you know up uphill both ways you know and it's a, it's a little you know yelling at the clouds or get off my lawn but then he gets into the meat of the matter and this is when he starts giving instruction to jack about one day you're gonna run the ranch and one day your son will run the ranch after you which i mean it's got to make any any yellowstone universe fans swoon when you hear that kind of stuff but uh, let's take a Let's take a listen to this clip. And then Elsa chimes in with a quick little voiceover to echo exactly what her uncle uh, literally just said. <laughs> Give a man enough time to figure his way out of anything. I figure a few will make it. Hope a few do. Why? Someday you're going to run this place. And for your son to someday run it too. You gotta understand what this ranch's greatest enemy is. It's not wolves or drought or blizzards or Texas fever. It's other man. Man will choose to take what you built rather than try and build it for himself. Your enemies have got to be so terrified that their fear is greater than their greed. I gave those men a chance because I wanted them to tell the world what happened when they crossed me. Man will always seek to take from others that which he can make for himself. Those are the words that have governed this family. Or perhaps it is our refusal to surrender that governs us. These are the words of the Duttons. I mean, that speech, especially the very end of it that Jacob gives to his nephew and great nephew 
is the words that Kevin Costner's John Dutton would give to Casey and give to Rip and give to anyone in the modern day Yellowstone verbatim. I could easily, if you, if, if that was just, if you just switched a character name, I would easily believe those words coming out of his mouth, which makes it family lore. It makes it a family motto, a family way of life. It echoes back to what Jacob says to Banner at the Livestock Commission meeting in the first episode. I have what my family fought for. Would you like to fight me for it too? I didn't think so. These are men of their word, and they will back up their word with whatever level of violence they feel they need to to enforce it. Right or wrong, I, you got, I think you have to respect the commitment, even if you don't maybe respect the methods, which I think a lot of people maybe uh, maybe bump up against. I think a lot of those people that we talked about who would be a little bit shying away from the teenage girl storyline, I think will eat up the uh, let's hang the sheep herders uh, storyline. I think that, that, that you almost had to have the balance, right? You had to have something like far more frontiersmen, just rough. Like, I mean, during 1883, we had those episodes where there was so much death and destruction and things happening that it's like, you have to kind of balance like, okay, it's beautiful that Spencer and Alex found each other, but hey, let's remember it's life and death out here and like shit is going on all the time you mentioned the fact that uh jacob makes the good point to his family about people starving on the reservation and that those sheep could go to good use there and then we see zane drive the sheep with some of the the cowboys they drive the sheep and the the, the reservation herdsmen which you have to imagine one of those herdsmen is probably tiona's father right i mean they, they mention that he's a herdsman on the reservation, and then we see a group of herdsmen coming out to accept the sheep. Presumably, I, I'm imagining the res they're talking about is the Lodgegrass Reservation. The fact that we would be dealing with two reservations would be mind-boggling. So we probably saw Tiona's father, maybe even the head uh, herdsman that that Zane interacts with, the one that says, you are the Dutton. And he says, I'll work for him. Hmm. Do you think then maybe the father is going to find out from the grandmother what's going on? And do you think maybe because of this, like, you're a good man, Jacob Dutton kind of experience that he's had that maybe the father will go to the Duttons and try to be like, look, can you help get our daughter out of here? I think that, I mean, that's really in Taylor Sheridan's playbook mm -hmm. because that would be comparisons going across generations and shows right we have we have tim mcgraw and the native american who wants to bury their father on the land in the flashback in season four flashback of yellowstone um you have the conversation that tim mcgraw's james dutton has in Episode 10 of 1883, we played the clip where he learns about Paradise Valley, where he says, I'll gladly give the land back in seven generations. I just want somewhere for my family for right now. And then you have the relationship, strained as it may be in the current time between John Dutton, Kevin Costner, Kevin Costner, John Dutton, and Thomas Rainwater and the Broken Rock Reservation. They are enemies, but they also work together. They recognize when they need to that there is a common, a commonality in their goals and they're not adverse to working together or at least having a detente there's also marriage there in the duttons in the future right john's son casey is married to monica who's of that tribe throughout the history the duttons have had a close relationship and at least at this part uh, in time or point in time it's a good relationship they're seen as a friend to the reservation but they have because their land probably abuts each other 
they have a relationship. Even in 18, even in 1923, they already have a relationship. Uh, I like the idea that they go to the Duttons for help as you're a white man that we can trust, help us out with the system. That feels very much like the synergy that Taylor would want to create across the timelines. So I like I that. I would hope so. And I, and I think that it puts the Duttons on the right side of history if they help dismantle any of yes. that stuff. Or even if they help get some of the kids out of there, then it does put the family as a whole in a better light, right? That they are willing to not only just reach out their hand when it comes to, say, giving sheep that's not theirs, right? Very easy to be generous with things that are not yours. But then if he does get involved, if they as a family get involved, if Kara gets involved, anything, there's something about that that is going to really show like the heart of the family, the willingness to help others. There's something there that does need to be delved into more because right now, you know, we see toughness, but we need to balance that with some heart. Right. And and I think for viewers, knowing the Duttons are on the right side of history somewhere makes it easier to continue to root for them throughout the ages because of their methods, because of their harsh methods, because of the fierce tactics that they employ to protect the land against all who come for it. Sometimes it's easy to see the Duttons as the villains in this story. And and I'm talking about the, the story being the overall larger Yellowstone universe. Banner trying to feed his sheep, Jacob Dutton hung eight men. Objectively, it's it's not black and white who is the villain in this story, even in this specific 1923 story right now. I think, to your point, I think it would be important for the viewers to be able to see the Duttons on the right side of history. Not just for the Duttons to be on the right side of history, but for us to see that, to, yeah. to, to justify why we root for them. And understand all the different consequences that's going to come with that. It's important to see how these relationships go back so far. I mean, if if he really does get involved with the Rainwaters, and then here we have the Rainwater so much later with the Duttons. And again, it's hot and cold, right? It's like some days we're enemies, some days we're allies. But that's I think that is a theme unto itself across all of these shows. On a given day, based on my survival needs, we could be enemies or we could be allies. And it doesn't vacillate because it's hypocritical what the people are doing. It's what they need. Because things are so life and death. I thought the giving of the knife uh, was significant in the scabbard because we got to see that in 1883 also. And and I think we didn't point this out in episode one. I think there is a sighting that Jack Dutton has on his hip, Elsa's knife that she was gifted from 1883. I I think that's a thing. If, If you go and look at it carefully, or at least it looks a lot like it. Jack Dutton carries a knife that may have belonged to his deceased aunt, uh, who was gifted it from, you know, the Native Americans that they came across in their journey. the, The significance wasn't lost on me of that. And again, a detail they probably didn't need to include, but I think it gives you the larger story continuity and larger story connections, um, which is important because, you know, yes, you may just be watching 1923. And I know there's a lot of people out there who haven't watched Yellowstone who are watching 1923. And and I hope you, you can enjoy this story that we're hearing so far. But for those of us that watch all of the shows, there is a 10,000 foot view of connecting themes here. And things like the giving of the knife is one of those kind of parallel themes that is significant in the show, right? This is a sign clearly that this man sees the Dutton as a friend. But in when you take a step back out to the 10,000 foot view, 
it's a recurring theme. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a larger sign of the relations that it means something. It almost seems like that knife could be some sort of little like secret symbol. Like, are you really here to help me? And it's like, you just like hold up the knife and they're like, that's from my, that's from my group. You know, I know where that's from, you know, like some sort of little secret sign. Well, that's when, when Elsa gives her, her, her name, right. Her, Mm -hmm. uh, her tribe name that saves her life in 1883, knowing that, that, that quote unquote secret handshake, Uh, that knife, maybe that's the thing that Jacob needs to ride or, or Jack needs to ride to the reservation or to Tiona's grandmother or Tiona's father and say, no, we're going to help you. Or, you know, we'll take up your cause. It's good business. Why wouldn't you want to help them? I mean, I, you can't imagine that they would agree with what's going on if they knew the the extent of it. It will be complex how they tell the story, right? It will be complex to like, how do they share this? What are they going to, what will they do? But, but obviously at some point, Tiona's story has to start weaving into the Dutton side. You know, we can't, like, we know Spencer and Alex will eventually come back. We're sure of that. So, Tiona, there's got to be something there, right? Where, how how are we going to start connecting the dots between Rainwaters and Duttons? And I think that this is a really good opportunity. I agree. I agree. Surprised that Jack didn't seem to have any more significant injury. I mean, he was found pinned under his horse, but didn't seem to have, I mean, I feel like any time I've ever seen a horse that can weigh, you know, a thousand pounds, <laughs> 2000 pounds, I feel like when they fall on you, that fucking hurts. Does something to yeah. your leg. I mean, I would, I would have thought just based on like rodeo riding and stuff like that. I mean, certainly I've seen a horse fall on a man and that ends up with like broken ribs and, and broken appendages and stuff, which nowadays, cool, we can handle back then. That's that's bad, bad, you know, could could be the end of you. So I think he was very lucky if he managed to get out of there with just some scrapes. I, I It's not fully finished, I think, of like, could he possibly have any other kind of, you know, limp or something that comes later that is a detriment? I think could be. But I, you know, Jack just feels like, oh, he just feels like such a sitting duck. Like he is he's going to go out here. Well, I mean, there's that great conversation, right? Where Emma, Emma and Kara, very little to do in this episode. They only have the one scene, but it kind of goes to your point, point where Emma comes out and Kara's sitting on the porch. She had heard some, uh, the dogs barking. So she suspected wolves or something. Emma comes out and she talks about how she had hoped Elizabeth. Uh, she she doesn't she worries about Jack's recklessness, right? Her son Jack's recklessness. She hoped Elizabeth would help tamp down that fire in the next generation. And, you know, as they're talking, they hear Elizabeth up in her room singing and she's dancing about. And, you know, Kara tells Emma that Jack may in fact be marrying the gasoline, that she is no tamping down, but she will inflame that recklessness and that fire. You see him whooping about at the end of the drive when they decide where they're going to leave the herd. He's on, he's on one of Banner's horses, right? That was something Jacob said. You owe my son, you owe my uh, nephew a horse. So he takes one of Banner's horses. When they say they're going to leave the herd there, it's Jack who's like whooping and says, we're going home. But like he just takes off. Like, dude, you were just pinned under a horse. 
But doesn't that feel like the worst? Doesn't that feel like one second later, like a hawk comes out of the, the sky yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, plucks yeah. him away? Because it's like, you don't yell, we're going home. Like, that's when you're going to die, man. If I was an actuary, I would not be placing a long life on Jack Dutton's life. I mean, the guy's too reckless. I would not issue an insurance policy no. on this man at all. There's no. not a high enough premium to let me insure insu- that guy's life. Not at all. Not at all. The scene between Kara and and Emma, why have it? It doesn't really add much to the plot, so it made me ask the question of why have the scene? Is it just so they had to give them something to do because you have Helen Mirren on the payroll? Or is it foreshadowing? Are they are they telling us? Are they letting us know this is an issue? His recklessness is an issue. Oh, I definitely think that it's it's just more character development in a different way. It's us listening to other characters talk about Jack. That helps us very much understand, you know, what's going on here. I think that their whole take on being the ones left behind, being the ones at home and how to handle that and what do they do? Like, we should follow the cowboys and see what a cattle drive looks like, but we also should understand, well, what does it mean? We talked about this a lot, actually, in 1883 about sort of like the hidden work of the women and how much that they were actually doing that wasn't really getting a lot of fanfare. And I and and I know I talked about it with you a lot in that in that series because I was like, I'm really wowed by how much the women do because during this time you get this again going back to sort of the etiquette and the oh, oh I'm so dainty oh I'm so fragile when in reality they are doing so much work they're keeping that ranch going without the men there they are keeping themselves safe without the men there they're not so fragile and delicate actually I thought Emma was really a pretty fascinating character because she was so outwardly exhausted by this whole situation and we got that a little bit with margaret obviously she was very exhausted by the by the situation but it's like there was something about emma that felt actually kind of modern in the in her concerns and her conversation like she really seemed like she was just like kids these days you know like you can almost hear it in everything she said that she was just like i need things to be smooth i need things to go easier and it was funny because it took a while there for me to kind of like put it together that it was like duh emma's like his mom and then also is her mother-in-law to be which i know that it's like duh 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 but they never used those words you know they never said he's your son that's your baby whatever you know what i mean like they never did that and they never had her be like oh my god she's gonna be my daughter-in-law you know like we never did that so it was like funny to think about what all these relationships were actually going to be boys are hard right at any age i mean yes i'm very modern mom but isn't that the thing i'm you have to imagine like Alexander the Great's mom was was saying the same shit about Alexander. Like, all he wants to do is go conquer and burn and pillage, you know? Like, me and you have teenage boys and, and, and I have 20 year old girls. And the way that she was talking and the exasperation in her voice, I felt her. I, I related to her. I was like, oh my God, kids, right? Kids. Oh. Literally had to pause this recording to go tell my teenage son to stop acting a fool and quiet down. So. Well, and when you said the line, when you said Elizabeth was upstairs, 
upstairs singing and dancing. My Elizabeth is upstairs singing and dancing right now. <laughs> like, it's like she has her albums on and she's up there jigging around doing her thing. So I don't know. There was something about it that felt very timeless about moms talking about stuff and, you know, um, and Kara being this wise matriarch, um, you know, who had, d- despite the fact that she doesn't have kids, she's obviously very smart and experienced and, and is there to discuss this stuff. All of that is a real slice of life that a lot of times writers don't bother to give you. You know, they're not, they're going to show you the adventures of the cowboys. They're not going to pause to show you what's going on with those trying to, you know, uh, raise kids or, or just live in this house or the loneliness of being out there. I thought about this so much when we were watching, uh, 1883 in terms of like civil war, and in terms of all of those uh, women and children staying home and being alone, you know, on those homesteads and trying to keep it all together and how little fanfare again that that got. And this this scene reminded me of all that, of, of feeling like, God, they have to keep this entire thing running while they're gone. Like the men have to come back to something. Uh, yeah, I think I think Margaret talks about that to Elsa in 1883, about the time that because for those not caught up on their 1883 lore, James Dutton fought for the South. He was drafted into the Civil War, was taken prisoner early on, or I think at the at the Battle of Antietam, maybe? I can't now I'm I'm blanking on which which battle. He's taken prisoner and then he spends the rest of the war in prison. But Margaret didn't know if he was alive or dead or if he was coming home or when he was coming home. And she talks about, you know, I, I'm I'm pregnant. I've had you. You're a baby. Your father's never even met you. You know, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if he's ever coming home. It's it's this side of men going the, the men going off to herd their horse, you know, herd their cows, hang sheep herders in fields, go off to hunt wild animals, man-eaters in Africa. You don't know if they're coming home, but you still have to do the work. You still have to muck the barns. You still have to feed the animals. You still have to feed those that are left behind. You have to keep the ranch running. That doesn't stop just because you're also heartsick about whether or not they're coming home, whether or not your loved ones are coming home. That's why Kara's out on the porch waiting for Jacob and the posse to come home from Bozeman. You know, she's not going to give him the satisfaction to let him see her standing out there on the porch, but she's damn sure going to stand there and count to make sure there are the right number of heads before she goes inside. Because it's heartsick on top of all the other stress and pressures that you have. The idea of, is anyone even coming home again to me? Dutton lore alert. I I think if any of our intrepid listeners want to make us a little Dutton lore kind of like buzzer air horn, like because I feel like we're going to have a lot of Dutton lore alerts. I think this is the second one or third one of this episode. Emma, when she first comes outside, says to Kara, I wish we had a smaller house to live in um, because the big house is just too empty when the men are away. And it's just too lonely and too depressing. So she wishes they had a smaller house they can move into when when the large groups are away cattle driving. I believe the house that John gives to Rip in Yellowstone uh, was a smaller house that was used by his grandparents, I believe. I, I have to go back and, and check the episode. It's stated which which of John's family members lived in there. But Emma talking about this here made me think that they actually went and built themselves a smaller house to stay in for those times when the larger family was away. 
And it's for certain the house ripped in, Rip lived in was a much smaller version of the main lodge. And it was used by one of John's ancestors, like immediate family members. So I think the house Rip was given by John is the house that Emma is talking about here. That they end up building. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I can understand. Even John, how many times in Yellowstone does he complain about how empty the house is Mm -hmm. and how he doesn't like it? It's so lonely and quiet. And so this is definitely another one of those traits that has trickled down where, where no one really can stand the big house unless everyone's there. Before we wrap up with the final, there's a couple things with Banner I wanted to talk about. Uh, I wanted to go back to Spencer real quick because I wanted to note this and put this on the board just in case it becomes an issue later. I wanted I wanted us to have credit for having flagged it. I brought up the fact that Spen- that Jack seemingly had no lasting injury from being pinned under the horse. Spencer sustained significant claw attacks uh, from the leopard at the end of last episode, but really it's the beginning of this episode that we actually see him doing battle with the leopard before he eventually kills it after it kills Kagiso. The leopard claw marks, they make a point of telling us that they are deep, that they need cleaning, that the wounds have to be redressed whenever he gets to the hospital in some larger city or else he uh, he risks the chance of infection or sepsis. With Spencer, as it turns out, he's going right to go hunt the hyena. There doesn't seem to be any talk of him going to get medical treatment. I don't mm-hmm. think we really see the doctor who has his iodine and bromide. He says you really have to get these, these medicines in deep into the wounds. I don't think we really see him really getting deep into the wounds. And certainly we don't see any kind of redressing or recleaning of those wounds. So I want to put on the board there. I, I think it's a possibility this, an infection or some, some consequence of these vicious leopard attacks that clawed up his chest are going to come back into play. Okay. Fascinating. I'm for. It. Well, it also makes sense, too, now that you have Alex along for the ride, that it would be something to fling them further even together. If she if she, in fact, has to then become his savior. Yeah, there, there's like some that. nice symmetry to that. And definitely uh, wasn't Margaret a nurse in the Civil War and did some nursing of wounds and whatnot. There could be some Alex uh, nursing of the wounds, the Florence Nightingale syndrome biz, too. Banner, we talked a little bit about how Banner questioned this is the 20th century and y'all gotta hang me. The interesting thing in Banner's little rant here as he's trying to defend himself before Jacob administers his justice, his Dutton justice, he says the state will come for you, that it'll only be a matter of time before the state comes for you, Jacob, and hangs you. Man, Banner really doesn't get how this all works. Even in 1923, the state doesn't come for fucking Duttons. It doesn't. I, I, when he said that, I was like, oh, Banner, you really, you have, you have, you, you, someone sold you a pamphlet on what America is and what you're going to find here. But the Duttons are giving you a grade A lesson, expensive lesson, costly lesson, but a lesson on the same that the pamphlet you received in Ireland about what America is, is not what America actually is in 1923. The state is not coming for fucking Jacob Dunton. He is not going to swing from a tree for anything he does to you. That's a tough lesson to learn. It's a tough lesson to learn to the tune of eight men. And if not for a, a, a nice horsey coming by to let him get a knife out, it would have been his lesson too. Yeah. Were you surprised that that horse like managed to wander over there with just the right stuff? Uh, yeah, it was like a Dusek horsey machina. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very convenient. Yeah, but someone had to live, I guess. And Jerome Flynn is probably getting paid more than the the extras that got hung by the trees. So <laughs> made sense. Sure made is. sense. He was the one who lived. No Sheriff McDowell this week. I was a little surprised at that. Just one week in, we didn't get uh, Robert Patrick back. And also, like I said before, very little Kara and Emma. This was very singularly focused on Spencer, who was really the last 20 minutes almost entirely of this episode, and the hanging section with uh, with Jacob and the Tiona section. It was really hyper-focused on those three characters and not much else. Which means that we should probably get like a little bit broader view next week, I would think, right? Episode-wise, it seems like we would. Um, I'm really, really hopeful predictions-wise that we're on to something here with the connection between, you know, Tiana's father and um, you know, potentially the Duttons here and that we can, oh my God, see some light at the end of the tunnel for that girl because I am not ready to go week to week with that story. No, I keep it's eating dinner be and stuff. Really I, I, hard. I, I keep eating when I'm watching these scenes, and it's just Mm-mm. it's just so hard. Can I just say this? The variety of abuse. Yeah. The like you. It's not just like you got to watch yourself when you're in the classroom. Like these people are seeking you out at any opportunity. That is like the mind blown. You right. know. Yeah, right, right, exactly. This is the, I'll read you exactly what I have in my notes so you guys get a little uh, a little glimpse into my thoughts about this place. Before Tiona gets beat with Sister Mary's billy club, she's sexually violated by Sister Alice. Fuck this place. That's exactly what I feel like. I mean, it's just it's just one thing after another. I got Sister Mary carries her billy club on like her in like her rosary bead chain. That's some gangster bullshit. Like, you know, like she's going out looking to whip someone in the bathroom. She's she's smacking her. And it's psycho to like go and seek someone out to beat. Like, go to bed, sister, for Christ's sake, for real. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. Just uh, the broader story. I think we're probably going to see the sheriff next week. There's going to be a tree of men that needs some explanation. Someone's going to notice the tree (laughs) of men. Someone's going to notice all of the men growing off of the tree. (laughs) Yes. So I imagine there jacob's gonna have to answer some questions perfunctory as they may be uh next week i'm gonna pull out uh led zeppelin's uh hanging tree and we'll play that under underscore something to look forward to listeners that will be amazing this is caroline and this is mike thank you for listening to the yellowstone podcast 1923 edition if you wouldn't mind heading over to apple Podcasts, spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate review and subscribe so you never miss an episode and while you're there if you could leave us a five-star review it helps in promotion of the show it helps us get recognized helps more listeners find the show so we can keep growing the show uh it would be great we would appreciate it and honestly you know I I was going to say I don't want to hang you from a tree, but that's too much. I don't want to beat you with a billy club in a bath. I, I, I'm just going to say, please just go leave. Just go leave a review, please. <laughs> we don't want to do anything to you. I don't want to do anything to you. I'll be your knight in shining armor. You can jump in the car with us, and we'll take you for a ride. There so, you go. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.